All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for coming. Um, I'm uh, Ben Friedman. I'm a research fellow in Defense and Homeland Security Studies here at Cato. Uh, we are here today to talk about uh, homegrown or domestically-based terrorism, uh, both in the United States and abroad. Uh, first off, uh, I want to thank the Mershon Center at Ohio State uh, for funding this event, and I also want to thank our, our technical staff and uh, our conference staff, particularly Becky Shaw, who uh, did a lot of the organizational work, uh, including getting me to plan, uh, which is difficult. Um, uh, so let me just uh, briefly say uh, what we're doing here uh, intellectually. We we've heard a lot uh, in the last decade um, or so about internationally-based terrorism, that is, you know, terrorism that's um, uh, where terrorists live in one place and attack another, of course, mostly Al-Qaeda in Pakistan attacking the United States or Europe. But uh, terrorism has always been a principally local phenomenon, a product of domestic political struggles. And, and even when terrorist stated grievances uh, involve some foreign trouble or conflict, uh, their attacks, by and large, tend to occur in places where they live. Um, now, lately, of course, uh, our government and uh, terrorism analysts are paying more attention to local terrorism. And, of course, one reason for that is um, the United States has lately experienced what seems to be a spike or a spate of uh, homegrown terrorism attacks and especially thwarted plots uh, where the perpetrators are longtime residents of the United States or native-born Americans uh, who, are who are connected to foreign terrorist organizations by little more than shared ideology. Uh, and Europe, of course, has had a similar and uh, more harmful relationship with homegrown terrorism uh, going back uh, at least into the 90s. Then around the world, uh, largely thanks to our successful military and intelligence efforts in Pakistan, uh, the jihadists or al-Qaeda bad guys that most uh, concern us these days are, are groups in Yemen and North Africa, in uh, Somalia, in Iraq, and lately Nigeria, uh, and also less organized uh, groups of guys, to use Mark Sageman, Sageman's terms, uh, who are all over the place. And beyond ideology, these regional groups, uh, whether or not they adopt the Al-Qaeda name, as some of them do, uh, seem to have frail or even non-existent uh, relationships to the battered Al-Qaeda center. Um, they're more fellow travelers than subordinates. Uh, and their politics are distinct. Uh, none of these groups uh, are, are great admirers of the West, that's for sure. Uh, but uh, all are either insurgents fighting a local government or closely linked uh, to uh, those insurgents. Um, so um, the purpose of, of our two panels is to consider what implications this sort of localism has, uh, both for terrorist strategy and capability and for counterterrorism. Um, and uh, we have, a, I think, a top-notch group of experts here to do that. Um, we're we're going to have the first panel uh, on homegrown terrorism which in the United States, which will run until uh, 11. And then we got a 15-minute break for coffee out in the lobby, uh, and then another hour and a half for the second panel, um, which is on homegrown terrorism abroad. Uh, and then we'll have lunch up on the second floor for those who want it. Um, so uh, let me introduce our, our first panel. Uh, first up, we have Brian Michael Jenkins, and uh, Brian um, is recovering from a medical thing, uh, which prevented him uh, from flying back and forth from L.A. Uh, to be here, uh, but he generously offered uh, to give his presentation on the phone while I flipped the slides, so we have a high-tech thing happening here. Um, and uh, just having his disembodied voice for us is, is terrific, uh, because he's probably the most uh, accomplished terrorism analyst there is, uh, having studied the subject for decades, uh, mostly at RAND, 
where he's now senior advisor to the president. And I can attest uh, just from looking lately that, that a lot of the stuff he wrote in the 70s and 80s on topics like nuclear terrorism, uh, when terrorism works, and what the right balance is uh, between paranoia and precaution, that stuff I think largely anticipated and helped shape debates uh, that we're having now. Um, and it's, it's, he's also, it's also good analysis. And uh, I think Brian's, uh, I believe, second most recent report for RAND uh, is called Stray Dogs and Virtual Armies, Radicalization and Recruitment to Jihadist Terrorism in the United States Since 9-11, which I think he'll draw on a bit uh, in his remarks today. Secondly, we'll hear from uh, Risa Brooks, who's uh, an assistant professor of political science at Marquette, uh, a fact that I see we've somehow managed to leave off the uh, bio we distributed, um, but it's, it's true nonetheless. Uh, and she's published a variety of, or a ton actually, of academic articles on various security-related topics, including civil-military relations, which is the subject of her first book, military effectiveness, which is relevant in some ways if here, if applied to terrorists. And lately, she's been writing on the effectiveness of terrorists and their relationship to their state and society. And I, I highly recommend her article uh, in last fall's edition of International Security, Muslim Homegrown Terrorism in the United States, How Serious is the Threat, which uh, we have outside. And then third, uh, we have uh, John Mueller of Ohio State and also now of Cato, uh, where he's become a senior fellow. Um, and uh, to introduce him, I'll just say that many of us younger and theoretically more energetic scholars uh, would settle for a career output uh, along the lines of what he lists among his recent publications, uh, which includes a small library of papers questioning the conventional portrayal of the terrorist threat in the United States, uh, plus three uh, recently co-authored, uh, authored, that is, uh, books on or touching on the subject, uh, Overblown, Atomic Obsession, and uh, co-authored with Mark Stewart, Terror, Security, and Money, Balancing the Risks, Benefits, and Costs of Homeland Security. And he also came out recently with an edited book uh, with research uh, and writing done by his students called Terrorism Since 9-11, The American Cases which I think he'll draw on a bit today. Um, and before that, John wrote a variety of important and now rather famous books on war, ideas about war, public opinion about war, and of course, dance. Um, then the, the second panel is focused on uh, homegrown terrorism, particularly in Europe, and uh, that's gonna be moderated by uh, Max Abrams, uh, who, and he can introduce the speakers when they're up here. Uh, but I'll just quickly introduce Max now. Uh, he's a postdoctoral fellow at, the, at Johns Hopkins. Prior to uh, getting his PhD from UCLA, he had a variety of uh, fancy fellowships prior to and since uh, uh, getting his PhD. He has a variety of fancy fellowships and research jobs. But more importantly, uh, he has in that time published, I think, an intimidating amount of uh, top shelf research on terrorism uh, and, and uh, his stuff on motivations motivations and success or lack thereof of terrorist organizations, I think has become sort of the central reading uh, for people in this field. Uh, and his latest article is also available outside. And I, I should say that Max was originally going to be a panelist, um, but we had too many people. And because he lives nearby and is my friend, I was able to demote him to moderator uh, without too much trouble. So thanks, Max, for your sacrifice. Um, so I'll try to limit uh, our speakers somewhat uh, to about 10 or 12 minutes. Uh, and then moderate some uh, group discussion. Uh, and then since, uh, you know, uh, my people uh, just celebrated Passover last week, we'll try to leave, uh, in, in honor of that, lots of time for questions. Um, so uh, with that, uh, I'll turn it over to Brian. Brian, are you with us? I don't know if it'll help if I shout at this end, but um, Ben and I decided that I would go first um, simply because I'll give you some, some basic numbers for the last 10 years that then uh, uh, people 
will interpret in, in, in a variety of ways. Um, I'm going to go through these fairly fast, but I think Ben has indicated that uh, we can make available uh, my slides either in hard copy or electronically. Uh, obviously, the, the title slide, which is the one I hope is up right now, uh, it is. Be betrays my, 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 my take on al-Qaeda's uh, lack of success in, in being able to recruit uh, large numbers of homegrown terrorists. Um, but again, others may interpret this uh, uh, somewhat differently. I think it is important, if I can have the next slide, Ben, um, that we do put this into context of uh, al-Qaeda's current circumstances. And that is that we have to see this, these increasing efforts to recruit uh, so-called homegrown terrorists um, as a consequence of their uh, seriously reduced uh, operational capabilities. Uh, since 9-11, uh, their accessible, easily accessible training camps have been dispersed. Uh, a lot of their networks that had existed in the early part of the last decade have been dismantled. Uh, their leadership continues to be decimated by by drone strikes and and arrests. Uh, a lot of this is a consequence of unprecedented cooperation among uh, the world's intelligence services and law enforcement, uh, and this has really made their operating environment a lot more hostile. In fact, they haven't been able to really launch a a centrally directed uh, a terrorist operation in the West since 2005. Can I have the next one, Ben? Um, they have um, typically, uh, being a, a resilient and opportunistic organization, they've morphed to meet these new circumstances. Uh, Al-Qaeda today is, is far more decentralized, far more dependent on its affiliates, its allies, uh, its ability to try to in, inspire these homegrown terrorists and strategically has moved away from uh, centrally directed strategic terrorist attacks, of course, culminating most dramatically in 9-11, in to now embracing a strategy of individual jihad and do-it-yourself terrorism. Now, that means a more diffuse threat, um, less destructive in its actions, uh, but it also means plots that are just harder to detect. Can I have the, the, the next one, Ben? Uh, obviously, if we were giving uh, these PowerPoints in Waziristan and, and instead of uh, Washington, uh, they would see things differently, not simply because al-Qaeda is on the, uh, the, the other side, but they have a completely different world view. Uh, and, and they would argue that we have survived the infidels' mightiest blows, uh, that our communications have increased and improved, and indeed they have, that our affiliates are active in the Arabian Peninsula, Iraq, uh, increasingly in Africa, in Somalia, uh, that the United States is in financial crisis, which they, they accept some credit for. Um, and that now only the small blows are required to provoke overreaction. And, and they point to the kind of attack uh, that was carried out not by a homegrown terrorist, but by a single terrorist sent into the United States, uh, uh, Abdul Matalab, the so-called underpants bomber, 
uh, where they invested a few thousand dollars, and the United States, in response to that, is deploying full-body scanners throughout 450 commercial airports in the United States at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars. That's the kind of exchange we're looking for. Can I have the next slide, please, Ben? Um, here, here's the numbers. Let's do the numbers here. Be, be, between um, 9-11 and the end of 2011, we have a total of 96 cases. Now, cases is, is a bit of a tricky word here um, because Ben, in his introduction, mentioned an uptick, and, and there has been, uh, in the last several years, a bit of an uptick uh, in the number of cases, but the number of cases really reflects how these things are divided for prosecution. If we look at the actual numbers of individuals uh, arrested each year uh, or self-identified by going abroad, even though they haven't been uh, uh, arrested yet, um, we, we don't see the kind of dramatic uptick um, that some people talk about. The other problem with the uptick is that uh, a lot of the cases that came to uh, fruition in 2009, 2010, even 2011, reflected activity that really went back to 2005. And beyond that, a lot of that is accounted for uh, a, a, a small number of, of uh, cases involving Somalis. But nonetheless, 96 cases these involve terrorists providing material assistance to terrorist uh, uh, various jihadist organizations, Al-Qaeda, Lashkar, Etoiba, or joining jihadist fronts abroad, or more seriously, uh, uh, plotting terrorist attacks in the United States. Now, that's, that's only the jihadist uh, universe. It excludes Hamas, Hezbollah. Uh, it also excludes those radicalized abroad coming here to carry out attacks. So it would not include uh, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber, or Umar Abdul Muttalib, the underpants bomber, um, and some other cases that are not clearly jihadist. Uh, that gives us a total of 192 persons who are, uh, were indicted or self-identified. If I can have the next slide, please, Ben. Um, quick profile of these American jihadists. Uh, you see here a, a significant uh, range in ages from 18 to 76 years. Average age 32, median age 27, a bit beyond uh, the ordinary 18 to 24 typical criminal offender. Um, vast majority of them are uh, U.S. citizens, either born as citizens or naturalized citizens. Uh, a number are legal permanent residents. Uh, a few foreign nationals and a handful of, of illegals. About a quarter of them, in fact, are U.S.-born with non-Muslim surnames. Uh, these are mostly converts. Uh, in the United States here, Somalis and Pakistanis predominate. Um, in Europe, it's Somalis, Algerians, and Pakistanis. And, and the connection here is that uh, a diaspora community connected with a country deeply involved in conflict. So that explains Somalia, it explains uh, in North Africa, Algeria, it explains Pakistan. As I mentioned earlier, a number are convent, converts. Uh, it's hard to tell in some cases, but about 20%, uh, Gartenstein-Ross puts it, 
higher. He puts it closer to 40%. Real number, probably something in between there. Um, educational levels, about 25% had not completed high school. 22% had high school diplomas. 40% some university. Um, it, it turns out that that coincides with the national average of similar-aged uh, males. Uh, a few more jihadists than that average start college, but then uh, uh, more drop out to join jihad. Can I have the next slide, Ben? Um, in terms of this recruiting effort, this is an intensive recruiting effort by al-Qaeda. There are uh, literally thousands of, of jihadist websites. Uh, some of these represent the, the central command. Uh, there's a second tier in which uh, recognized uh, jihadist theorists discuss strategy. And then there's, uh, there's a vast number of uh, locally run chat rooms, bulletin boards, websites where, where people get on and participate uh, in online jihadism, and I'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, they have used American-born spokesmen, uh, Adam Gadan, who is one of the principal English-speaking spokesperson for Al-Qaeda Central, uh, Anwar al-Awlaki, who was killed last September, Samir Khan, the publisher of Inspire magazine, also killed uh, last September, and Omar Hamami, young man from Alabama, who most recently um, indicated he had concerns about his own life uh, being threatened by a rival faction within uh, Somalia's Al-Shabaab. Um, online magazine Inspire, this is an English-language magazine. It's sort of a combination of uh, man, men adventure magazine, adventures in jihad, and some instruction. Uh, then there are individual recruiters, some in the community, some in prisons. And I mentioned here at the bottom the distribution of the Nobel Koran. Uh, this is a version of the Koran that, in fact, has uh, additions and footnotes uh, which define really the Koran in jihadist terms. Can I have the next slide, uh, Ben? Um, why do people join, uh, join jihad? Uh, religious belief is a component, doesn't appear to me to be the key factor, perhaps more of a factor for some than others. Uh, what is a consistent, uh, a fairly consistent uh, uh, lure are our personal grievances, a sense of anger, a desire for collective revenge, uh, feelings of humiliation, uh, joining to demonstrate manhood, uh, become part of this warrior subculture, uh, offers of adventure, participation in an epic struggle. I don't want to make an insidious comparison here, um, but uh, these are the same reasons. And I speak uh, uh, as an ex-Special Forces soldier. Uh, some of these are the same reasons people, people join elite units in, in, in the Army. Not that they become terrorists, but... but uh, these things are typical recruiting uh, themes. A lot of jihadists, however, uh, certainly more so than, than those who join any army, uh, really see this as a solution to personal crisis. Uh, basically, 
this is self-medication for an unsatisfactory life. And, of course, a handful are just simply pulled along by their, by their pals. Can I have the next one, um, Ben? Uh, let's take a look at the, the, the actual plots to carry out terrorist attacks in the United States. 37 of these, no evidence of any continuing campaigns here. These are one-off events. Um, most of them are very, very small. Uh, only three of the 37 plots involve six or more persons. In fact, better than two-thirds of them involve a single individual. Uh, most of the plots are immature, amateurish. Only 11 of these plots had what could be generously called an operational plan, that is, uh, a, a selection of a precise target, uh, acquisition or efforts to acquire weapons or explosives, and some idea of a sequence of events that would actually lead to the talk. In other words, that went beyond the, the pounding the cafe table saying we ought to do something. Now, of those 11 plots, seven were FBI stings. So without the FBI, uh, only four of these plots made it up to operational capability. Uh, only three resulted in an actual attempt that was Faisal Shahzad's uh, attempted bombing of uh, Times Square. His device didn't work. Uh, Nidal Hassan's killing of 13 fellow sh soldiers at, at Fort Hood uh, and Carlos Bledsoe's uh, killing of an Army recruiting officer and wounding another uh, in Little Rock, um, Arkansas. Uh, those were the only two, the two gunmen, uh, that caused any casualties. Uh, let me have the next slide, please. Uh, these plots overall could just really be characterized as, as uh, reflective of limp determination and, and fortunately very low competence. It doesn't mean they're not dangerous, but low competence. Um, the stings do indicate that when the means were readily provided by somebody, the intentions, the intentions to kill were there. But on their own, actually, in terms of, of, of building bombs as opposed to acquiring uh, uh, guns, which are easy to acquire in our society, only two individuals actually attempted to build devices, uh, Planned suicide attacks, very rare, only a couple of those. Um, that doesn't mean that lethal attacks have to be suicidal. Uh, these people regularly are, are described as not being very bright. Uh, that's true, although unfortunately our prisons are filled with dummies uh, who, who are felons who, have, uh, who are there for, for killing other people. The real critical factor here in, in, in their competence is hands-on training. Um, can I have the next slide, please? And we're coming to, to really my, uh, my conclusions here. And, and that is the, the jihadist recruiting campaign that I started out describing has really produced only a tiny turnout. There's no army of sleepers, which we worried about early in the last, in last decade. There's no evidence of any vast underground. We're talking about 192 persons out of several million uh, Muslim Americans. Now, a common measure of, of, of 
criminal activity is measured persons per 100,000. That's where we do our crime statistics. Uh, what we're looking at is six per 100,000 over 10 years. Now, that's a low yield. Uh, it's, it's comparing apples and oranges, but just keep in mind that the prison population of the United States is about 750 out of 100,000. So it's okay, very, very tiny numbers here. Uh, the decisions to join were largely personal, uh, very little evidence of community support. Indeed, uh, uh, in many cases, the original tips to the authorities that something was going on came from uh, the community. Uh, what we can't count, of course, are things that don't occur, so we have no way of counting the number of dissuasions that took place uh, within the, the community. Let me have the next one, uh, Ben. Um, I'm, I said I wanted to come back to this issue of the Internet. Does the Internet facilitate recruitment or does it dilute commitment? Um, what is interesting to me is when people talk about the terrorist threat to the United States uh, at the beginning of the 21st century, the fact is in the 1970s we were dealing with 50 to 60 terrorist bombings a year in this country. Uh, bombings carried out by uh, uh, the extreme left or uh, as a consequence of foreign quarrels, anti-Castro Cubans based in Miami, Puerto Rican separatists, uh, Armenians seeking revenge against Turks, Jewish Defense League, uh, a variety of, 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 of groups. Um, despite the fact that most had liberal arts educations, uh, they were able to actually build bombs that worked. Um, the Internet does allow um, individual activity as opposed to group activity. In other words, you can participate in jihad on the Internet without really meeting anybody in person. Indeed, it allows uh, online jihadists the opportunity, if you watch these websites and see what they do, they, they boast, uh, they threaten, they exhort each other to action, uh, they vent their anger, and it provides a certain degree of psychological satisfaction without taking any physical risk. At one time, al-Qaeda was very skeptical of online jihadism and, and kept telling the brothers to push back from the monitor and actually go do something. But now it has been obliged to give credit to online jihadism. And indeed, it, it, it emerges from a culture itself that recognizes verbal expression, the verbal expression of, a, of an intention as much as an actual achievement, not that they're delusional, uh, but just that they get great credit from expressing themselves uh, sincerely. Now, a lot of people do point to the fact that the Internet, when we look at the individual cases, that the Internet was very important to individuals who recruited themselves into terrorism, and that's true. But that doesn't mean that the Internet was an effective recruiting vehicle. It's like asking, you know, people who buy a particular model of car um, why they bought that car. And they may say, gee, I bought it because I like the ads on television. And then you ask the second question, you say, well, how many people bought this model of car last year? And you say, 12. Um, it does suggest that those who bought it were motivated by the ads they saw, but the ads overall aren't working because not a lot of people bought the car. Let me go to my very last slide, and, and I really 
am constantly irritated by this this so uh, this term uh, lone wolves uh you know if you look at nature a lone wolf is a, a, a an independent predator usually bigger stronger more aggressive uh hunts outside the pack if we go into uh, uh literature a lone wolf is is the determined renegade outside the system who do, does what's necessary when we look at these individual cases, we really do not see lone wolf behavior. We, we, we see these jihadists, again, boasting, barking, barking bragging, uh, very skittish. They, they wander about in this ideology, some of them for months or years before doing anything. They sniff at the edges. Uh, some of them finally then go across the line and, and, and break the law. When I was working on the issue of terrorism in Italy in the late 1970s and early 1980s, uh, the Italian intelligence services uh, referred to those terrorists that were actual members of the Red Brigades, the Brigatisti, uh, or members of one of the other groups. And then there was a scattering of people who who really didn't belong to organizations but went around uh, as, as kind of wannabes, and they were referred to in Italian as cane sciolte, which translates into stray dogs. And I think really um, stray dogs to me is the preferable term to this uh, somewhat romanticized and indeed somewhat complimentary term, uh, lone wolf. So that was the title of my most recent uh, paper on this, um, Stray Dogs and Virtual Armies, uh, which is available from, from RAND. Um, that's my take. I look forward to your questions later on. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. All right, Risa. Good morning, everyone. My comments today are going to be about a paradox that I've observed in the debate about homegrown terrorism, and they actually pick up very nicely from Brian Jenkins' final point about stray dogs, as you'll see in a few minutes. Um, since 2006, as many of us know, there's been increasing concern about the number of terrorist attacks perpetrated by, in particular, the subset of the American population, Muslim residents and citizens, which often is associated with homegrown terrorism. At the same time, there's been this increasing observation that the nature of these attacks are increasingly unsophisticated, subject to failure, perpetrated by lone wolves, or as Brian Jenkins just said, perhaps more appropriately, by stray dogs. And reflected here is some general intuition that the capabilities of terrorists in the United States um, are really inadequate, that there's something wrong, they're not able to really do anything too ambitious. And my, so what I'm going to talk about today is the reasons why that is the case. What is driving um, the limitation in capabilities of homegrown terrorists? The argument that I'll make is that the limitations in capabilities are rooted in the security environment in the U.S., and by security environment, I mean not just the counterterrorism activities of law enforcement and intelligence, but also societal factors. Um, the well-observed um, fact or that Muslim communities 
have demonstrated resilience and resistance to militancy in their midst, um, and general societal awareness, um, which is a diffuse and difficult thing to conceptualize, but I think also plays a role in generating a largely impermissive security environment. And so I'm going to link up for you how the security environment actually limits the capabilities of terrorists, and that's my task in the next few minutes. I'm going to make three points. The last one I won't elaborate on, but I can pick it up in Q&A just for reasons of time if anybody is interested in. And the first point is that the security environment increases the baseline probability, I'll explain by what I mean by that, of detection, which increases the skills required of terrorists to avoid detection and to not make errors in preparing or plotting a terrorist attack. At the same time, the security environment has a second order effect because it makes it more difficult for terrorists to acquire the skills that would ha allow them to actually overcome the obstacles to being detected and preparing attacks. So it makes it, hard to, it, it makes it harder to be a successful terrorist in terms of one that actually hits their targets and achieves the aims, and it also makes it harder to become that terrorist, impairs training and the ability to gain expertise locally. The third argument, again, which I won't elaborate, is that the alternatives to local training and seeking out expertise and practice um, the internet and overseas, seeking out overseas training are insufficient alternatives, and that they themselves generate security risks um, that increase the skills required to really capitalize on the opportunities that the internet potentially provides and overseas training potentially provides. Okay, let me make a couple of clarifications before going on. I'm talking about plots with some pre-operational activity. And this can be rudimentary, but even the most basic plot when it's conceptualized involves some steps in preparation. It recalls, it requires perhaps recruiting co-conspirators, some surveillance, visiting a building, looking at entrances and exits, observing security measures. It requires, if especially if an explosive device is going to be used, acquiring um, the materials for that, perhaps uh, chemically deriving those materials, fabricating it, putting it together, and throughout the whole um, process, making sure to protect the security, maintaining operational security. So making sure not to expose oneself in the course of doing any of these preparatory activities. So I'm talking about plots that involve some steps of that nature. And I'm talking about plots by um, potentially pursued by American Muslim residents and citizens. Um, I think the arguments I'm making today could apply to domestic terrorists more broadly, other kinds, right-wing terrorists, but my sense is that, um, and I could explain this, the security environment is especially intense for this subset of the population and the obstacles to gaining access to training to becoming a skilled terrorist are especially hard for that subset of the population. So my first argument is um, the security environment increases the baseline probability of being detected during these preparatory activities, which 
in turn increases the skills required of somebody attempting to undertake those activities if they're going to avoid detection. Okay, now let me say what I mean by this sort of baseline probability of detection. What is that? Often when people are talking about a plot being, people often talk about plots as being detected. And that's really a mischaracterization. Because a plot is just the summary plan. In fact, pre-operational activity involves numerous steps, numerous sub-steps, sub including, for example, um, acquiring, if one's going to build an explosive device or use an explosive device, getting the equipment, getting instructions, practicing, preparing, finding a detonation device, seeing if the device works. And then one could break that up into even smaller, more micro-steps. And why that's significant to consider is that each of those steps then can have some maybe small probability of detection, some possibility that somebody's attention is attracted, that some law enforcement picks up something out there um, from these activities. And so the real probability of detection is the sum of all of the, of of the possibility of detection across all of these minor steps, which is more significant when one thinks about it um, than just thinking about the plot as a whole being detected. And I think that's not just conceptually important, but empirically uh, plays out. And I'll explain how we see actual, the way that plots are exposed, consistent with this idea that there's many opportunities or nodes in which detection can occur during the preparation steps of a plot. Okay, my second, um, or related to that, so given this, what do you have to do? You have to be a more savvy, skilled terrorist, aspiring terrorist, not make a lot of mistakes exposing oneself, talking to people, purchasing equipment in the right place, um, not hitting a trip wire or reporting requirement by somebody when you're trying to buy chemicals, uh, not uh, buying certain kinds of fertilizer in too large amounts. Many different things have to be, one has to have some awareness if one's going to do anything of any significance. Um, now, in practice or in principle, needing more skills is not the end of the world. One, that's a surmountable problem. What do you do? You find experts you train, you uh, practice, you perfect your ability to, say, build a bomb with more difficult ingredients, things that are less likely to be detectable. The problem is those very activities of practicing and trying to um, gain expertise can run into the same kinds of security problems or probabilities of detection as as the initial effort to mount an attack. So training is a security risk in and of itself, locally anyway, in the US. Um, and in this way, what you see is that it becomes very difficult to become a skilled terrorist. So what we have are, are whatever people bring to the table at the start, which is insufficient to get them very far. Um, now, what kinds of, I, I'll, I'll tell you a vignette and then a couple of pieces of evidence that I think demonstrate how this dynamic is working to limit the capabilities of terrorists. Um, one of them is um, one sign of the evidence of how the, the security environment is making it hard 
to be a terrorist in the U.S. is the, the stage at which people who are trying to do these kinds of activities are detected. And mostly it's in a very early stage. So what we're seeing is that these micro steps when they're being taken are somehow along the line. Somebody in the community is noticing. Somebody in law enforcement is noticing. It's coming from all different directions. But that pre-operational activity is exposing the plot early on before it can go very far. As we just heard Brian Jenkins tell us, most of these plots are arrested at a very early stage. Um, A second piece of evidence is the way that law enforcement and and communities and people are um, actually detecting these plots. So exactly the mechanisms through which they're being exposed. And there are several different studies, one by Syracuse University, also by a couple of think tanks, a consortium in North Carolina as well, um, by the sociologist uh, Charles Kurzman, led by him, um, and other studies that talk about and discuss the role of uh, community tips, unsolicited community tips, and informants, um, law enforcement informants, playing a a substantial important role in exposing plots at these early stages, which shows the way that the security environment, not just law enforcement, but community resistance, makes it very difficult to gain the anonymity, to gain any complicity, to obscure one's efforts to train, to prepare any kind of attack. So by some accounts, you see... uh, of the plots, and the, people count these differently, so it's sometimes the numbers are, one has to sort of read a little bit more deeply into it, but of um, plots, um, 35% by one study have been exposed through an informant, 9% by an undercover agent who became involved in the plot. Uh, 22% of terrorist activities, now these aren't just plots, attacks, these are all kinds of activities, but um, by, and this is, American Muslim residents and citizens have come have been exposed through unsolicited tips by members of Muslim communities. That's people like um, the five men from Virginia who went over to Pakistan to join a jihadi group whose parents contact a local affiliate of care um, and then via that, uh, go to the FBI. And there's several incidents of this kind of stuff. And this is only the stuff that makes it to the press. Right? There's a lot of other things that go on that demonstrate that, the, that communities are really central parts of creating an impermissive security environment for anybody who might consider becoming a terrorist. Okay, um, last vignette and then one last comment. I want to... Uh, reference Faisal Shahzad um, a little bit in this. Um, Recall he's the man um, who tried to bomb Times Square in May 2010. He had constructed his own bomb. He had actually been trained in Pakistan, um, supposedly for quite a lengthy period of time, including in in building explosives. Um, And his bomb did not work, fortunately. And Uh, Most people, the first press accounts, talked about how it was poorly constructed, and the implication there was that it was exclusively or primarily because he was incompetent. And that may, that's likely to be the case, or that his training wasn't sufficient, which I think is not surprising. (laughs) But there's another piece of that story, 
which is um, shortly afterwards, uh, Police Commissioner Raymond Kelly came out and talked about the fertilizer that Shazad had used in that bomb, in which was a low-grade fertilizer, low-grade ammonium nitrate fertilizer, not like the high-grade stuff that Timothy McVeigh had tons of um, in, in the 1990s when he blew up the Murrah building. Um, and what's interesting about that is Raymond Kelly said that Shazad had purposely purchased that low-grade fertilizer because he wanted to decrease the possibility of being detected as he was fabricating his bomb. So what one sees is that the security environment actually led this man to purchase a, a kind of equipment that was going to make it harder for him to actually make an explosive device up to the bar of the skills required to do that, and in that way was impeding and impairing the capabilities of, of Shazad. Um, and I think it's a nice dynamic of illustrating how it becomes harder to be a terrorist in an impermissive security environment because of the skills that are required um, to more creatively build bombs that will avoid detection at some level. Okay, my last comment. And it, this really does tie into the final comments that uh, Brian Jenkins just made about this sort of mystification we had for a long time about lone wolves and sort of this cunning terrorist. And what we've seen actually in the press more recently reflected in his comments as well is uh, this, these musings about terrorists, especially American terrorists, being not just poorly skilled, but really blatantly incompetent and uh, very, you know, almost in some cases humorously so when one reads the court documents of the cases that are brought forward. Um, and I would suggest to you that this is not surprising that American homegrown terrorists are so subpar as a class of terrorists. Um, because if the security environment is impermissive, what it means is that many people are going to be deterred who might say have some internal desire to take some kind of violent action. But if they're rational, they're going to be deterred and think about, look at the obstacles that face me. So a lot of people will turn away from that. So who's left? The people who are least likely to understand intellectually the obstacles they face or that are so driven internally as to not care. And what does that selection effect yield? It yields a class of terrorists who look especially subpar compared to um, the sort of general standard we might expect. Um, and that with that, I'll stop and let John go. OK, thank you. Nice to be here. Uh, let me uh, begin. Uh, you can hear a fair amount of agreement with the two previous uh, presentations. But let me begin with uh, sort of a global comment uh, that might be useful to put on the table. Um, and it may be kind of sacrilegious uh, here in Washington, D.C., sort of three centers of hysteria, sustained hysteria in the world, in the country at any rate. One is Washington, the other is Cambridge, and the third is the Weather Channel. Um, and um, so I, I feel it every time I come here. Um, but basically, what I'd like to do, like to do is, a, is a comparison between Lee Harvey Oswald and 9-11. Uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, who killed President Kennedy in 1963, was basically a total loser and an incredibly trivial guy who had, who had visions of, of grandeur. And he got lucky once. 
terribly, obviously. His bullet barely, you know, his bullets have been a couple of inches either way. He would have missed the president entirely. Um, and uh, what has happened after that is a lot of people have said that, well, this was a monumental event and it couldn't have been done by a trivial person. Um, and so there's been elaborate efforts going on for a long time, decades, uh, trying to find out, well, it must have been by the mafia, or it must have been by Fidel Castro, it must have been by the CIA, CIA it must have been by the Soviets or something. Um, and they simply can't take the idea that a big thing can be done by a trivial person. Now, I'd like to apply that to 9-11 in a similar sort of way. Um, not exactly, however. Um, that is that in, in the case of 9-11, what happened was you had a monumental event that was uh, perpetrated by fundamentally uh, a fringe group of a fringe group with delusions of its own, grandeur and so forth, um, and, uh, and they, were, they got lucky. Uh, they weren't all that lucky on the fourth place, but they, they, like Oswald, were in the right position at the right time and able to carry it off. Um, and of course, what actually happened on that was spectacularly counterproductive because what they're trying to do is, is cause a lot of damage in the United States to cause it to pull out of the Middle East, and to say the least, the opposite happened. Uh, but what's happened since that time is an elaborate effort to say, well, this is a monumental event, which it certainly was, the, by far, by far the most horrible terrorist event that's ever taken place in history. Uh, the previous biggest events have killed maybe uh, two, three, four hundred at the most. Um, and uh, so, so it must have been done by this massively competent uh, uh, organization, and they're everywhere, and we have to look for them. The 19 guys were all killed, uh, but, they're, they're, but basically there's been a tendency to exaggerate the importance and the capacity of, of, uh, of, uh, of Al-Qaeda. Uh, since that time, of course, Al-Qaeda seems to have done almost nothing uh, except issue videos, um, and it also, most of its uh, activity, I'd add this somewhat to what uh, Brian was saying, um, has been counterproductive uh, to the point where uh, they had killed so many Muslims in, in, with various kinds of terrorism in the Middle East that, uh, according to uh, David Ignatius' column, uh, in his lay, uh, layaway uh, hideout, uh, Osama bin Laden was contemplating changing the name of al-Qaeda because it had become associated with mainly killing a lot of Muslims. Repeatedly, the terrorist acts have been counterproductive. The Saudi government, the, uh, the Indonesian government clamping down, the Jordanian government, etc. Uh, and then also the acts that, of the al-Qaeda affiliates in, 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 um, in Iraq have proved to be spectacularly counterproductive as well. So it's basically been its own worst enemy in a lot of ways. Uh, and basically, it, it, it hasn't done much of anything. Some training, maybe. Um, in a couple of cases, uh, maybe some complicity in plots in Pakistan and a few other places, um, and uh, certainly an inspiration for some uh, jihadists around the world. So in some respects, it may be that that, that anyway, that's, what, that's a perspective I'd like to put forward to begin with. But what we want to concentrate, of course, is on the homegrown affiliates or in, uh, inspirees, almost none of which have had any connection with al-Qaeda, a handful, particularly in the early years, may have. Um, let me just read you from uh, the uh, Office of Homeland Security, Office of Homeland Security report early on after 9-11, which is said, ter today's terrorists can strike at any place, at any time, and with virtually any weapon. Um, and uh, more recently, um, the uh, D Department of Homeland Security and its National Infrastructure Protection Plan of 2009, um, since it's dealing with trying to protect infrastructure, one of the things it ought to do is look at what it calls the nature of the adversary. Uh, and so it has two sentences, essentially, uh, on the nature of the adversary. And it's all at the dire end of the spectrum. The enemy is relentless, patient, opportunistic, and flexible. 
shows an understanding of the potential consequences of carefully planned attacks on economic transportation and symbolic targets, threaten, seriously threatens national security, and could inflict mass casualties, weaken the economy, and damage public morale and confidence. Um, okay, um, let me keep that in mind. Eric Holder just recently uh, uh, said, uh, this goes into the Obama administration, we face a nimble and determined enemy that cannot be underestimated. What he actually means is should not be underestimated. He seems to be saying the opposite of what he's trying to say there. But at any rate, um, uh, what, I, what, I've, what I've done is, a, is some, somewhat like what uh, uh, Brian Jenkins did. Look at a set of cases. I've got 50 cases now. Uh, it started out basically with a, um, a seminar I gave at Ohio State a couple of years ago, honor seminar. And I had each student do a case study of uh, incidents in which a terrorist plot was, with, had, had intention of inflicting damage within the United States, uh, whether they were based in the United States or abroad. So it would include the underwear bomber, who was outside, but of course wanted to do damage here. Uh, uh, but it would not include Americans who were going overseas to fight the Americans there. Uh, and one of the things I asked the students to do uh, was to, um, this whole thing now was published as a web book, uh, was to look at the, what are, what are these guys like that are doing this? Don't just tell me about, you know, what they did and, you know, how, how, you know what their sentences were and so forth. But what they smell like, what they look like, what were they, uh, what, they were, what, 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 what made, what, what motivated them and so forth. Um, and uh, I can give you a set of, a of adjectives that came out of the studies. Um, what they found of the terrorists were, as opposed to relentless, uh, whatever it was, you know, relentless patient opportunistic, flexible, show an ability to blow up the country and so forth, their words were these, incompetent, ineffective, unintelligent, idiotic, ignorant, inadequate, unorganized, misguided, muddled, amateurish, dopey, unrealistic, moronic, irrational, foolish, and gullible. Um, uh, somewhat, somewhat different kind of perspective. Um, and so what you've got basically is it seems to be uh, following up both what Risa and uh, Brian were saying is a, a, a sort of the bottom layer uh, in, in many cases. Uh, and they mostly have not been able really to do much of anything. Um, let me just give you a couple of uh, instances. By, by the way, the cases, uh, when they came in, I graded the papers, of course, and made a lot of comments. And then most of the students were willing to revise finally. And then I did a lot of editing. My wife did a lot of copy editing to get them so that, it, and they, they followed a, a, an outline that I'd put together in the course of the, uh, of the, of the, of the quarter uh, to, so they're sort of comparable cause. So there's, there's one thing about what was use of the internet, for example. So each case, some cases there was none, sometimes cases there, there's lots. Um, and, but the cases were often very fascinating. Uh, and many of them should be made into movies. Um, uh, there is a, a video, a movie made in Britain called The Four Lions, which I would recommend. Um, it's, it's basically very funny uh, in a horrible, in an ultimately desperately sad sense. But many of the things in there, when I watched it, said, that's not fiction, that really happened. For example, in The Four Lions, they accidentally kill a, cheat, a sheep. And the guy says, well, that's a blow against the agricultural infrastructure. Um, in a real case in California, they were robbing a bunch of gas stations in order to get enough money to buy a gun so they could commit some real terrorism. And they said the act of bombing of, of, of the, uh, hitting the gas stations was a blow against the infrastructure of, of the petroleum industry worldwide and so forth. Uh, uh, repeatedly, there would be things that sort of resonated with the real cases I had. Okay, let me just uh, con conclude. I want to be brief here so we have plenty of time for questions. Um, the... Um, uh, uh, there's basically uh, uh, several things that should be emphasized to me, three or four. Uh, one is that none of these guys 
have been able to detonate, as Brian said, have, have been able to detonate even the simplest kind of bomb. Uh, and, in, uh, and that holds not only for the United States, but also for Britain. There's never been any terrorist in Britain who's been able to detonate a bomb, except for the 7-7 case, 2005, where they, the four bombs went off in the underground. They tried again three weeks later, two weeks later, and none of the bombs went off, and nor have any others. Um, and uh, this is pretty impressive because, as Brian said, uh, amateurs back in the 70s were setting off all kinds of bombs at uh, various types. The only case in which, in fact, they really tried to detonate a bomb was one guy um, who had concocted a Molotov cocktail, which, you know, can create a fire. It's not really maybe even called a bomb. Um, and uh, so he's going to kill a rabbi. Uh, so he went to the house and he threw the Molotov cocktail against the house. How that would kill the rabbi inside is not entirely clear. Uh, but there were three things wrong with this plot besides that. One is uh, the bomb, the, the, the Molotov cocktail bounced off the window and didn't go in the house. Second, it didn't explode regardless. And third, he had the wrong house. Uh, uh, and that, is, that comes up repeatedly, these kinds of uh, comic things. Uh, um, the... the, uh, the uh, um, the guy who was going to take down the Sears Tower, his ultimate plan was that the Sears Tower would fall into Lake Michigan, create a tsunami, which would wash back on Chicago, uh, liberating prisoners from a downtown jail in Chicago, and he'd use these, them to form a new Moorish nation. Um, and uh, the informant said, uh, who came in, said, that's a really great idea, but maybe we should start with something a little bit simpler. Um, so they started, sc they started scouting, blowing up the... Uh, the FBI headquarters in Miami. Okay, one thing I'd like, anyway, so, they, so they, the point is they haven't been able to do even that kind of thing. Um, a second point has to do with their motivation <coughs> and also the issue of radicalization. Uh, I was really surprised at this when I went through the cases, not qualitatively, but quantitatively. Almost, there was a few cases which you can't figure out what their motivation was, uh, what they're trying to do. Um, but uh, in almost all the cases, other than that, um, the motivation was overwhelmingly hostility to American foreign policy. It had nothing to do with uh, contempt for democracy. It had nothing to do with uh, contempt for American society. In fact, they really liked the American girls quite a bit um, and were impressed. And they, you know, a lot of them were hard drinkers and so forth. And, and even though they came from very, uh, very often from, uh, to say the least, underprivileged uh, backgrounds, there was very little hostility to, to that. Um, the, almost nowhere is the word Sharia law mentioned or caliphate. In fact, most of these guys wouldn't be able to spell either word. Um, and so the, um, uh, but, but it was a, a, a basically visceral outrage at American foreign policy and the support of Israel and, and Palestine, uh, particularly Iraq, obviously, and Afghanistan for the Americans. Um, and, and so the question is, is that radicalization? I mean, the radicals, there is radicalization. I'm really outraged at American foreign policy. And the radicalization is, okay, why don't you do something violent about it? So that, you can, that makes sense. Uh, but they're not radicalized in an ideological sense. Uh, most of them couldn't spell that either. Um, so, um, okay, a couple of uh, other points uh, on this, and I'll conclude. Um, we have had sort of this, this sort of major sort of, um, to use a word that uh, Glenn Carl has used, delusion about, uh, about, about these people. Uh, but one of the things that came up uh, frequently um, was the issue of informants and police, and that's something we probably want to talk about more, both in this panel and maybe the next one. Um, the, in the, I had 50 cases 
Again, I excluded cases about people wanting to go overseas or to supporting, supporting uh, Al-Qaeda in, in, in Iraq or something like that. So just a, a focused on Americans. So there's 50 cases. Um, and almost half of them, the informant or the FBI or the police, were vital to the plot being carried out. Um, they, uh, they essentially, they would not probably have been able to do much of anything, though, as Brian suggests, a lot of these guys were really violent. Uh, they had violent backgrounds, criminal backgrounds in many cases, uh, and might eventually been able to do something or other, uh, presumably not including the complicated thing of making a bomb that worked, but nonetheless, maybe something would have happened. But it, it was basically crucial um, uh, in, in various places. And uh, one of the cases is a Bronx synagogue case in which a group of four, one of whom was a confirmed uh, schizophrenic, um, were supposedly planning with an informant who was extremely helpful um, uh, to uh, blow up several, two synagogues in the Bronx and then shoot down an airplane with a surface-to-air missile, which none of these guys had ever even seen before. Um, and then they were going to make their getaway, too. They were, it was not suicidal. Mostly, as Brian said, hardly any of these are, are suicidal, even though they're obviously risky. The judge in the case who's from Ohio initially, but somehow she made her way to the Bronx. Uh, we all make mistakes. Um, and um, uh, uh, in, in, in finding these guys guilty, because they really did push the button that the FBI supplied for them, um, uh, she said, uh, only the government could have made a terrorist out of Mr. Cromaty, the main guy, whose buffoonery is positively Shakespearean in its scope. Um, and there's a lot of cases where that's the case. Now, these guys are dangerous. The thing is, they're not, it's not like they find some guy sort of sitting on a curbstone on a curb and try to convert him into a terrorist and so forth. They pay p people who are spouting jihadist rhetoric. Frequently, there's a, there's a, um, a father issue. The informants, it's hard to find out exactly how old they are in many cases, uh, but they tend to be fairly old, like in their 40s. In other words, old enough to be these guys' father in many cases. And so we got this loudmouth spouting jihadist. No one in his family or any place has ever taken him seriously. Suddenly there's this old guy, 40 years old, 45 years old, drives a great car, and he's listening to these guys. And he's answering. He says, oh, yeah, it's interesting. You know, in other words, first time maybe he's taking them seriously, and there's a strong effort to try to, um, to, try to please these guys. Um, the, um, one one uh, uh, final point here is on recruitment. Um, Al-Qaeda has tried early on to try to recruit Americans, um, if, if they can, makes perfect sense from their standpoint if they want to hit the American mainland. Uh, and this has been just an abject failure. Their first attempt is actually before 9-11, once they sent a smooth-talking guy to Lackawanna, uh, New York, uh, in the Yemeni community, and he got uh, um, a, a, a small number of them to go over to, uh, to Yemen, or, or to Afghanistan, to uh, join a training camp. Uh, they were appalled at what they found there and came back. Uh, except for one guy who's, who stayed. So that was a gain of one person from this whole effort. Um, in addition, as far as I could tell, and I may be wrong about this, but there's no, in the public record, um, there doesn't seem to be any cases in which the CIA has successfully uh, implanted an a, uh, agent uh, or operative within Al-Qaeda. Al maybe I'm wrong, but uh, I don't know of any cases like that. Uh, however, at least two guys did do that. Um, uh, uh, a guy named Venus and the, and the uh, uh, guy Zazi who tried to um, set up bombs in the, in the subway in New York. Um, and they were genuine converts. They, they went over there and they wanted to fight jihad. In the case of Zazi, he wanted to fight in Afghanistan. They were diverted by al-Qaeda and they were genuinely radicals. You know, they really wanted to fight. They really cared. They were horrified by American foreign policy. And, and they were brought into al-Qaeda and allowed to be part of the game. 
Um, and then they were both eventually arrested. And once they were arrested, they acted as if they had been CIA plants from the beginning. Uh, they had been talking fully with authorities, partly because you can put pressure on their families because they're from the United States themselves. Uh, and so the net gain for that has been entirely negative as far as the jihad, as far as Al Qaeda is concerned. Okay, let me end on that. Thank you.